Open with me in your Bibles to Matthew 14, as we continue through Matthew's Gospel. It's a pretty well-known story, true story, feeding of the 5,000 plus. In context, as you may remember from last time, we learned about how John the Baptist, for preaching the truth boldly, um, ended up being beheaded. The disciples of John went and told Jesus about what had happened. And that's where we pick up in verse 13. So let's stand together for the reading of God's authoritative, inerrant word. Hear the word of the Lord to you this morning. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about five thousand men besides women and children. Thus ends the reading of God's holy inerrant word. May he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. You may be seated. My brothers and sisters in Christ, as I was preparing for this message this past week, one commentator pointed out this is the only miracle that Jesus performed that is recorded in all four Gospels. I thought, hmm, that's interesting. And I pretty much took his word for it because I didn't have time this past week to read all four Gospels and comb through them and see if he was telling the truth. However, as I did read the other commentaries, I I like to get others' views on it and, and learn different things from them as well, my colleagues in the ministry. Um. One person pointed out there was indeed one other miracle that is recorded in all four. (laughs) The resurrection. And I'm like, okay. So that was a biggie that I kind of missed. So, um, however, what, what what still makes it pretty interesting here is other than the biggest miracle in a sense, the resurrection of Jesus, the only other one recorded in all four Gospels is this one right here. The feeding of the 5,000 plus women and children, so who knows how many that was. That was a very big number. And what's interesting about this is that as I looked at each of the Gospels' version of this, um, each writer gives you a different facet of the diamond, as it were. They give you a different perspective. They highlight a different aspect of the feeding of the 5,000. Um, So, for example, I don't have time to go into it this morning, but I'll give you an example. Um, In John's Gospel, the emphasis, and you can see for yourselves, check up on me later. I'd love to have a discussion with you. I always love to if you want to talk about this later. In John's Gospel, the emphasis is on this. Jesus says, don't come to me merely for physical food, right? But come to me, what? 
for spiritual food, food that will well up for eternal life. Whoops. And so that's in John's gospel. But as we look on and we see in Luke's gospel, the emphasis is on both Jesus healing the sick and instructing the people in the kingdom of God. Mark's gospel emphasizes the fact that Jesus' compassion leads Jesus to teach them. It's more on the teaching aspect than the healing aspect. But as we come to Matthew's gospel, he doesn't mention so much the teaching aspect. He talks about how Jesus' compassion leads him to heal the sick. So why do I say that? Because this morning I'm not going to preach on all four accounts. I'm going to discipline myself, and and Tom's going, thank you. And what we really want to see here is why did Matthew bring this up here in his gospel, and what point is Matthew making in his larger theme of his gospel? The theme of his gospel, by the way, is Jesus is the Messiah King. And we're going to see how this account fits into that theme that Matthew is presenting to us. He's primarily writing to a Jewish audience, And yet, as you know, God included it in his word for all of us. And so we're going to see this morning, we're going to try to stick to Matthew's account. I'm going to maybe say a word or two about the other accounts, maybe, but it'll be brief. And what we're going to see is this. In contrast to the kings of this world, our king came to compassionately serve through us. That was the interesting twist that I saw in this text. You know how you all, often you'll go to a text, you think you know what it means, you've read it a million times? Well, I had a big aha moment, which is always neat, because I want to be able to feed you with the meat and the milk of God's Word. So I'll repeat it again. In contrast to the kings of this world, our king came to compassionately serve through us. So the first, we're going to see three things about it. First of all, our king serves in compassion. That's how our king serves. Secondly, our king serves through us. And last of all, we're going to see our king serves in power. Don't mistake his meekness for weakness. Two different words, even though they sound the same. So let's take a look at the first thing. Our king serves in compassion. Look at verses 13 and 14 again. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. So the text tells us very clearly that when when Jesus heard about the awful thing that happened to John, he withdrew to a quiet, solitary place. But the text doesn't make it explicit as to why Jesus did that. So we can kind of uh, conjecture why Jesus left. And, and there are probably many legitimate reasons we could think about. But I'll tell you one thing. It wasn't out of fear. Jesus was not afraid of Herod. I remember later, I don't know if it's in this gospel or not, where he says, you go tell that fox. Like in other words, he's not worried about Herod. But we can certainly conjecture that, um, as you remember Jesus saying that, Out of all the sons of men, none were greater than John as a prophet. And uh, and Jesus deeply loved John. And Jesus also, I believe, I mean, as the whole gospel bears out, Jesus knew that his time would be coming soon. He knew just as here is a servant of God, a great prophet, a great man, 
that should be honored by the kings of the world. And instead, what does he get for, for holding up the truth in love? He ends up having his head on a, delivered on a platter. And so Jesus went away. Certainly, in terms of uh, pondering that and regrouping in many ways, our Lord. But we can't help but notice as we look at the text the difference between this world's rulers and the ruler of heaven and earth. Think about it. What does Herod do? Herod has a party, right? Which displays opulence and sinful overindulgence, right? Herod's having a party where his, his illegitimate wife's daughter, his brother's daughter, think about this, is dancing illicitly in front of him. That's a little messed up, isn't it? <laughs> That's the kind of party Herod holds. What kind of th- th- party does Jesus hold? Jesus holds a free clinic for the sick, right? We see Jesus sits down with the crowds who are sick, and instead, what does he do? He heals those who are sick. That's what a leader does. Can I get an amen? A leader cares for the people, doesn't exploit them. Because that's the other point. What does Herod do? He exploits the people that he's ruling over. Jesus, in compassion, serves the people. He's a good king. He's a compassionate king. That's the word of the text. He had compassion on them and healed their sick. In lust, Herod promises his illegitimate wife's seductive daughter anything she wants. Whereas Jesus, by His grace and in love, offers His own care and His own company to His subjects. The thing that really gets me here in this text, as a, especially as a pastor, but even just as a Christian person, man, do you ever just want to get away sometimes? Do you ever have a busy life where you're just with people, 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 and you're like, you know what, I just need a little me time. I always tell you this story, and this is a little different, but it's funny to me. When, when we were on a little vacation to Italy, and I'm in the ocean, and in our oceans here, we don't have boulders coming out right by the waves. You know, It's kind of smooth. You can walk out really far and not hit your toe on anything. Well, apparently in Italy, it's a little different. And I remember I go to walk in the water, and I was going nice and hard, and bam, hit my toe right on a boulder. And I mean, I saw stars, right? And so, of course, Donna and Tom and Mary are all like, are you okay? I just said, five minutes. Just give me five minutes, family. (laughs) And sometimes in life, you just want a few minutes alone. Can I get an amen here? Well, Jesus needed some time. He wanted some time. He is 100% human, 100% God. He gets away. And notice what happens. The crowd hears that he's getting away, and they beat him there, basically. He's on boat by foot. They beat him to his place where he wants to be alone. Now, here's what I'm saying. As a leader, I would be like, oh, seriously? Right? I'd be like, can you just give me a break? Five minutes. But Jesus doesn't do that, does he? The interesting thing here to me in this text, which is amazing, is that he doesn't view the people excuse me, as an inconvenience, does he? He doesn't view them as an annoyance. But instead, he views them as sheep, as it were, without a shepherd. He views them as living souls, as real people that need compassion. Whoops, I 
banging into everything this morning. Sorry. People that need help. Before I go to the next point, think about this. Can you imagine a king or a leader or a president that's like that? You know, we talk about voting for presidents. We talk about the kind of leader we want. Can you imagine if there was a true political leader in our day who actually cared for people? And I don't care what you are, Democrat, Republican, Independent. We know what politics can end up being, right? It can end up being a way for people to get power and money and self-aggrandizement, you know, self-promotion. But here we have the true king of heaven showing us what a true leader does, what a true king does. Truly. He serves with a towel, doesn't he? As, he? as he serves us and cares for his people. That's the first thing I wanted you to see, is that the king, the Messiah king, his service is service in compassion. But the second thing I want you to see, and this was the big aha for me this week, our king serves through us. Wow, you're going to say, how did you get that from this text? Well, this was the big thing for me this week. I have often heard such uh, platitudes when people preach on this. I just got to be honest. I listen to other preachers sometimes, and I'll hear them say, you know, the point of this passage is a little is a lot with Jesus when you give it to Jesus, you know, and they get a nice sentimental, our daily bread, you know, you read the little sentences, we all go, ah, and that's the end of that. And I got to say, that always annoyed me a little bit because I'm like, I have a feeling that that's not exactly the main point that Matthew was trying to get across. I feel like the main point that Jesus, that, that Matthew's getting ap- uh, across about Jesus as you look at the big context is he's making a point that Jesus is no mere man. That he's more. That he's God. He's the high king of heaven. Come visit us in the flesh. Because look, he can provide in a desert, right? He could feed thousands of people miraculously. The next, very next passage we're going to preach on next, next week, he can walk on water. I think that's like the big takeaway. But as I study the actual text itself, which we always strive to do, we we strive to do exegesis, not eisegesis. Exegesis means we get it out of the text. Eisegesis means I put it in the text. And we try to do that. We try to get it out of the text. And as I did that, as I studied, I saw that it's undeniable that Jesus himself was teaching his disciples and us a valuable lesson that flows out of the main lesson that he is the high king of heaven, that he is God, come visit us in the flesh, that he is the Messiah king. And what I saw was this. This is what's interesting in the text. The disciples come to Jesus, right? We know the story. And they say, look, it's getting late, right? Because Jesus and the people just kept it up and it's getting late. And the disciples kind of intervene. They're like, Jesus, this is enough. Now, basically, and, and one commentator says this, and I think he might be right. Maybe they were getting hungry. You know, they're kind of like, because I know that kind of, whenever I say to my family, hey, you think maybe it's time to eat? A lot of times I'm not thinking about them. I'm thinking, we need to start doing something. So they come to Jesus and say, look, send, these, send them away. It's getting late. They can go in the other villages and they can buy some food. Here's the interesting thing that I found in the text. In the Greek, there's actually an emphasis in the word, one of the words where in Jesus' response, and he says this to them, he says, you give them something to eat. And the emphasis in the Greek is on the word you. And so then I went, aha. 
It is from the text. It's not a simple uh, platitude. The interesting thing here is, Jesus is making a point. He is telling them, the disciples, to feed them. Now the disciples' response is, now wait a minute, Lord, we only can manage to scrub together, scrounge together five broken pieces of bread and a couple pieces of fish, a couple fish. We can't even begin to make a dent in the need that's before us. And that's where the miracle really begins, doesn't it? Jesus says, bring what you have to me. And then look at verses 19 and following. I just want to read it. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven. He gave thanks and broke the loaves. He gave them to the the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. Here's the thing in the text I want us to see. Jesus wanted them to sense their complete inadequacy. He wanted them to see their complete inability to meet the need. He wanted them to feel acutely the impossibility of the situation. That's what we see here. He wanted them to see that it was impossible to accomplish, humanly speaking. And once they saw that very clearly, they even acknowledged themselves, how in the world could we possibly do this? Then he goes to work. After he gives thanks and he breaks the bread, he gives it to the disciples. And then notice what the text says, because we can miss this. Listen. It says the disciples gave them to the people. Did you notice that? In other words, the disciples actually fed the people. Now, of course, Jesus is the one multiplying it. That's the miracle. But notice it's as the disciples are giving it. So look, think about this for a minute. All right, we, we could get so used to this, this uh, story that we're not thinking. We're not really paying attention. Imagine if you're one of the 12 disciples, and here you are, and you have one piece of bread in your basket. And you give it to Sean, and you know that there shouldn't be another one left. And you go in, and then, oh, there's another one for another one. You go through that for hundreds and hundreds of people. You imagine the impact that that would have on the disciples. It would be tremendous. And it certainly had an impact on the people, but I don't even think they were as close up as the disciples were. So some of them may not have even noticed how great of a miracle it was. I have one quote from a commentator that I have to bring out that I think he puts it so well. He says this, It is not God's intention that we should be in, ourself, in a, of ourselves adequate to our tasks, but that we should be inadequate not strong enough or clever enough or possessed of sufficient knowledge. If we will only accept the task which we think adapted to our powers, we shall not respond to his call. God can make us sufficient. If God has given us our task, we must do it now and do it as we are. Now here's the point I thought was so powerful. Listen, the church is always in a crisis and always will be. (laughs) Isn't that awesome? It's so refreshing to hear these words to me. Difficulties, limitations, insoluble problems, want of men and of money, a menacing outlook, endless misunderstandings and misrepresentations. We have not just to do our work in spite of these things, 
They are precisely the conditions requisite for doing so. (laughs) In other words, this is what I love what the commentators point out here from the text. It's not that we are to serve the people in spite of all our challenges, but it's, it's in light of those challenges. In other words, God wants us to recognize it's not of us. When we go to minister the gospel, whether it's officially as pastors and leadership or whether it's as lay people, we share the love of God with other people, we have to realize the miracle does not come from us, it comes from God. Our sufficiency is not in whether we're a mega church or we have five people in a church plant. Our sufficiency comes from King Jesus. You can say amen at this point. This is a powerful thing to me. I've got to be honest. You know, I, I know the pulpit isn't a confessional, but sometimes as pastors, when you're going through a book in the Bible, you get to like the feeding of the 5,000. You know, how many times have we heard this? And like, what, what's the big... And God just really kind of smacked me upside the head. It's exactly what our church needs to hear right now. I like to bring this illustration up, but I don't mind, I don't mind, I don't mind repeating myself. Star Wars. The Jedi Returns. Isn't that one of them? What is it? The, the Return of the Jedi? You remember when uh, they, they get Han Solo's blind, they unfreeze him and he still can't see. And um, they're, they're doing this botched job of rescuing him. And the, so they pull Han Solo out and Han Solo can't see. And he says to Luke, how are we doing? And Luke goes, same as always. Remember that? And Han Solo goes, that bad, huh? And, and everybody laughs, and we always love it because that, that's the heroes are always like on a wing and a prayer, right? It's always like they're just about to fail, always. But what I love about that is, honestly, look at the history of the church of Jesus Christ. It's always in our weakness. It's always, a, the whole movement's always about to fail, right? Constantly. And it's in our weakness and our inability that we get to see God's total ability. His total adequacy. His total sufficiency. It's just when things look completely grim, when it looks like it's kind of over for the heroes of the picture, right? That God says, feed them. And then provides in such a miraculous way that no one can deny it was King Jesus that did it. Not New City Fellowship. Not First Pres, not whatever church. But Jesus. And I love that because we'll always need more money. I don't care what size church I've been in. We always need more money. We always need more staff. We always need a better building, right? Because there's a church that supports us, huge church. Like, well, to me, it's like 800 people, and they have this giant building, and they're, they're on a building campaign to enlarge their building. <laughs> That's not a criticism. It's just we're always going to need more, right? And I think one of the big takeaways, before I go to the last point here, I think the issue here, excuse me for this, but big issue here is this. We dare not wait until we have the resources we think we need before we do what God says. God says reach Atlantic City. And we may want to say, well, when we get more people, more staff, more money, better building, then we'll start the real work. What this text says is that's disobedience. You have five, broke, five loaves, go for it. Trust me. Give thanks to me. Follow me and start serving. Just do what I tell you to do and watch me work. 
That's what we see in this text. Because who gets the glory? Isn't that the issue? Jesus gets the glory. Not even the best, most godly person will he share that glory with. The last thing I want to point out, and to me this is the punch of the overall punch of the passage, is this. Our king serves in compassion. Our king serves through us, through his church. And last of all, our king serves in power. Look at verses 20 and 21. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. This is certainly the main punch of the overall message of the Gospel of Matthew. Here we have none other than the Messiah King. God come visit us in the flesh providing miraculously for His people. It definitely harkens back to Exodus. You remember in Exodus where God spread a table from heaven and He fed them with manna miraculously? You remember that? Well, here we have King Jesus saying what? That's me. Remember how God provided for for you? Well, here I am in the flesh. And I'm providing, again, which is interesting, a table where? In the desert. And not only did they all eat, think about this, 5,000 men plus women and children. But here's an interesting thing. You would think that at least everybody got a little piece of something. You know, sometimes you'll do that, you'll give somebody just a little something to hold them off so that when they get home, then they're really starving, they, they eat. It says here in the text, they were all satisfied. In other words, when Jesus does the ministry, you could guarantee it's going to be done right and it's going to be done, the, it's going to fulfill the need. Everyone went home satisfied. And here's the other, other interesting thing. I, I never picked up on this before either. How many basketfuls were left over? Twelve. How many disciples were there? Looks like they didn't have to worry about dinner or breakfast the next morning. Amen? And it was a lesson for them always to remember that there is even left over. And this is a lesson that we have to learn over and over again, even as the people of God who lived thousands of years after Jesus' ascension. And that is this master, this rabbi, this prophet from Nazareth is really none other than the king of heaven and of earth. And we're going to see that this is going to come to a climax a couple chapters later when Jesus finally gets to the head and he says, who do men say that I am? That's what it was leading up to. And the gentleman who led me to the Lord, it was that passage that convicted him. Realizing that we, who we have to do with is the one who created everything. So what I want to leave us with this morning is this. Such a God who is willing to become one of us, to leave His throne in heaven, to come here and to serve us in compassion and in power and in mercy. Listen, this is important. Is He not worthy of all your worship. 
Is He not worthy of all your devotion? Is He not worthy of whatever suffering that you're going to take because you bear the name of Jesus? And I think of even New City Fellowship. We're not suffering for me, the church planner. We're not suffering for the PCA. Hopefully, you're doing this, I'm doing this for the one who loved me and gave Himself for me. God come in the flesh. He's called us to serve, to love, to give. And it was a good rebuke to me in many ways as I went through this text. Say, what does the the feeding of the 5,000 have to do with my life? And I think sometimes we get so caught up in our own interests, in media, in what's going on in this world, and we say, get your head out of that book and start helping this society. Well, I got news for you. It's only folks who are filled with this book who are any use to society. And that's the truth. And so are you following, are you trusting in, are you loving and are you serving the one true King of Heaven who came to serve compassionately and to change the world, believe it or not, I probably wouldn't have chose it this way, but through His imperfect, weak, insufficient church. Amen? May God use us as we humbly acknowledge our inability and His total ability. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that though we are weak, You are strong. And that You don't use us despite our weakness, but You use us in our weakness to prove that this great and glorious glory is not of ourselves, but it's from You. Thank You, Jesus, that You serve us in compassion, that You have mercy, that You see us as beings created in Your image, not just as one of millions and billions of people who don't matter. And we pray, Lord, that as we serve, even this week, that You'd give us Your patience. You'd give us Your view of the world. And that we would serve and love and as we have to suffer, each of us, in our own ways, in different ways, in some ways together, may we do so joyfully, knowing that we belong to You and are a part of Your kingdom's purposes even here in Atlantic City. Be with us to this end for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This Sunday sermon was preached by the Reverend Dr. Santo Garofolo. New City's Sunday sermon is recorded live on location at New City Fellowship of Atlantic City. If you're in the Atlantic City area, stop by. Our address is 215 North Sovereign Avenue, Atlantic City, New Jersey. Visit us online at newcityac.org. That's www.newcityac.org. Oh God is written and performed by the Reverend Dr. Sandra Garofolo. Join us next week for a brand new New Cities Sunday Sermon.